If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. With Uber Reserve, good things come to those who plan ahead. Family vacay? Reserve your ride as soon as you book your flights. To all the planners, now you can reserve your Uber ride up to 90 days in advance. See Uber app for details. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. By the time you get to Rome at its imperial peak, you're looking at a million and more. And that is quite extraordinary concentration of human beings. And it's not paralleled in modern times until very recently. That was Andrew Wallace Hadrill discussing the history of Rome. You lock up and stay not just magnificent, but I would say multiculturalism. And of course, multiculturalism inserted into a city which is already multicultural. And that was David Bates describing Norwich Castle. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good newsagents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our third podcast of August 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with Professor Andrew Wallace-Hadrill of the University of Cambridge. He's the presenter of a new BBC Two series, Building the Ancient City, Athens and Rome, which begins tonight... Thursday the 20th of August, and charts the rise of two of the greatest cities in the classical world. 
I spoke to him a few days ago to find out more. How exactly was a city defined in the ancient world? That, it's an extraordinarily difficult question, how a city was defined in the ancient world, because, of course, city is our word, and sometimes we call it town, um, and they, they have at least two separate concepts. One is the idea of the city which is a state, the polis, uh, the kivitas, and that embraces also the countryside, and it's one of the big contrasts with the medieval city, that the ancient city is town and country. Then the other thing is the asti, the oppidum, the urban core of uh, this state. And that is much closer to our idea of a city. And they, just as we don't really know how to define a city, uh, they, they struggled with defining it. But one definition is the city walls. Uh, many, many cities have a circuit of walls. But if you take the case of Rome, its circuit of walls was out of date for most of the period when Rome was great. And it's not until the end of the third century that Rome acquires a, a set of walls that somehow correspond to the real concentration of population. And, and then uh, legally, there's a very interesting definition at Rome, which is that the city extends a mile beyond the walls. The powers of the magistrates extend a mile beyond the walls. And anything that is continuous habitation beyond the walls is part of the city. It's a disputed thing in antiquity as it is today. Your series picks out Athens and Rome in particular, and clearly they are you know, part of very important civilizations. But what was it as cities that set them apart from other cities? In the case of Rome, what sets it apart is scale. Probably in its day, Athens was set apart by scale. We're probably looking at a concentration of 100,000 people. It's, it's certainly, for the 5th century BC, it is a very, very big cluster of people. By the time you get to Rome at its imperial peak, you're looking at a million and more. I think it's possible it may even go up to a couple of million people. And that is quite extraordinary concentration of human beings. And it's not paralleled in modern times until very recently, last couple of hundred years. Rome, a huge city. I mean, nowadays we have all kinds of modern infrastructure, transport, technology to, and to service a city like that, and also a large agricultural base. How on earth did they manage all that in, you know, 2,000 years ago? One key thing about the city is getting, getting food supplies in. And both Athens and Rome sit right by the sea, but not on the sea. So both of them have got great ports, the Piraeus for Athens, Ostia and Portus for Rome. They're just a few miles away, and they make quite sure that the link is protected into the city. You can't possibly feed that sort of number of people, not even the 100,000 of Athens can you feed from its own territory. You have to import food. And above all, the staple, which is wheat, grain, um, has to be shipped in. In the case of Rome, when you're looking at a million plus, you set up an enormous and complex scheme to bring in that essential wheat. And once you've done that, you, you set up schemes to bring in other products too, olive oil, even pork meat. It's all shipped in. Then, of course, you've got to have water. In Athens, that's 
relatively okay. Athens is relatively well watered by natural water supplies. In the case of Rome, they build their aqueducts, which bring water from uh, 50 miles away. Did this make these cities quite vulnerable then? Because if somebody could cut off either their food or water supply, then you'd potentially have you know, huge numbers of deaths. Both cities were vulnerable. In the case of Athens, it was only vulnerable if you controlled the sea access. Because of its long walls that linked it down to the sea, even when the Spartans invade, ravage their countryside, lay siege to the city, they can survive simply by importing through the Piraeus. And unless you've got a fleet to blockade it, and no one does that to Athens, it's very hard to reduce the city. In the case of Rome, Rome didn't actually experience very many attacks until late antiquity, when already uh, the, the military power of Rome and the naval power of Rome had effectively collapsed. And the barbarian invaders found it relatively easy to reduce this well-protected city. What kind of people would have lived in, in Athens and Rome? Would they have been in some way different from people who lived elsewhere in, in these empires and civilizations? I think what, what characterises the population is its diversity. You, you have an enormous immigrant population. Other places may rely particularly on their area, their hinterland. But Athens and Rome draw populations from far and wide. Uh, well, I think one of the most striking things for us is, is their openness to immigration. There don't seem to be any real controls, uh, any attempt to keep immigrants out, because they're needed so badly. With a very big city, you cannot sustain the population on reproduction. You've got to import people. London, of course, imported people from all over Britain. Athens and Rome both imported people from all across the Mediterranean, especially in the case of Rome, a vast population of outsiders. So it'll be the diversity and complexity of the population that really set them apart. What benefits would somebody achieve or have from living in a city that they wouldn't get from living outside Athens or Rome? Because it was essential to keep these big populations alive, both states took enormous precautions to ensure a food supply. And I think one of the biggest benefits is just uh, to have a, a safe food supply. And of course, uh, it, it, it breaks down from time to time. There are riots in Rome when, when the grain ships don't come in, when the corn prices uh, skyrocket. But an enormous state effort is made to ensure that food supply. So you get the benefit of uh, guaranteed availability of food. And then if you're a citizen, and I think one of the really important things is the distinction of the citizen from all the rest of the population. If you're a citizen in Rome, you get free handouts in quite a, an extraordinarily generous way. Something like a couple of hundred thousand males got monthly handouts of, of grain, which turn into handouts of bread baked in advance for them, and handouts of pork and olive oil and even occasionally of wine. And so how, so how would you have got to become a citizen? Because as you say, it doesn't apply to everybody living in these cities. Citizenship can in theory only be achieved by birth. You can't 
just apply to become a citizen in another city, even uh, by residence. And what, what the Athenians do is they mark off people who've taken up residence in their city but aren't born citizens. Uh, they give them a special status, they're metics, and they have certain rights but not the same rights as citizens. However, particularly in the case of Rome, they're quite extraordinarily generous about extending the citizenship. They're generous in the sense that if you have served the state, if you fight for Rome, if you support Rome in significant ways, you can be given the citizenship. You can apply to the emperor for citizenship. You can apply via your patron. We have wonderful letters from, uh, for instance, the younger Pliny writing to, to the emperor Trajan saying, uh, I've been very well served by Hippocrates the doctor. He's saved my life. I'd like you to give him the citizenship. So Trajan does. So there are lots of routes into the citizenship, though in theory, it's only achieved by birth. Who would actually organise the running of the cities? Would there be an equivalent of, you know, a local council like we have nowadays? Yes, uh, Athens and Rome are rather different, but both have extremely complex systems for, for running cities. So Athens because of its fundamental attachment to democracy and the participation of citizens, elects lots and lots of annual officials. They're, they're said to be about 700 of them. And they, they form little boards, groups of 10 people who are in charge of the markets and in charge of bringing in food and in charge of weights and measures and so on and so forth. And any citizen can have their go at, at being one of these minor officials. In the case of Rome, it's much more centralised and the emperor sets up quasi-military systems to ensure everything works. So you've got a prefect of the corn supply and heaven knows how many officials under him. And you have a fire brigade with an official who's another um, imperial military appointment and, of course, a chief of police and so on and so forth. Would that have been funded by a kind of form of council tax again like we have nowadays? No, they didn't pay tax in Rome. Um, they, they paid all sorts of uh, indirect taxes. But uh, citizens actually throughout Italy, Roman citizens throughout Italy, were exempt from taxation. It's a burden that fell on the provincials. So what's paying for it is actually the empire. As long as the emperor brings in enough revenues from, for the empire, he can run his vastly expensive city of Rome. And that's why when the empire collapses, so does the city of Rome. And the population collapses from over a million to a few tens of thousands. How important was the built environment to the way of life of the people in these cities? What always catches our eye are the big big monuments in Athens, of course, the Acropolis and the, the Parthenon, and in Rome, the Colosseum and, and the Pantheon and so on and so forth. But what's very striking, especially in the case of Rome, is how well built the overall urban environment is. The ancients knew all about grid planning, and there, there's a famous grid planner, Hippodamus of Miletus, who did the extension of Athens into the Piraeus. And that's one way of achieving a well-ordered city. But actually Rome, which was a much bigger city, never went in for grid planning. I think the most important thing they do is that 
they they map their city. The central authorities have the first street-by-street guide to the city that we know of. They could tell exactly which houses were in which streets with how many inhabitants. And of course, to cope with an enormous population, what they do is build upwards. So most uh, houses in Rome must have been five, six, even seven stories. And how much of the ancient cities actually survive nowadays? And, And how easy is it to get a sense of what they used to be like? I used to live in Rome. I lived in Rome for 14 years. And one of, one of the extraordinary pleasures is discovering forgotten bits of Rome. I remember one excavation when they were doing um, building work on a cinema quite near the Fontana di Trevi. And they were trying to create a multiplex cinema with several several layers. And predictably, when they dug down into the basement they discovered some blocks of of Roman housing, probably the Neronian period, uh, beautifully preserved, uh, up to, I don't know, about 10 metres high. There's an extraordinary amount of ancient Roman housing buried under the modern city. And the reason is that the city has always remained in the same footprint, even if it's shrunk. It has gone upwards, the the, the ground level today is at least seven metres higher than the ground level in antiquity. So the older bits get progressively buried, but they are there to rediscover so that the shape of the city remains the same, at least the central city. And the traces of this really complex urban environment remain visible in cellars, in excavations, under churches, under cinemas. How influential were Athens and Rome in terms of city building throughout Europe and the world? Athens and Rome uh, set models for the rest of the world. That influence is pervasive and complex. Uh, Everyone looks back to Rome and everyone looks back to all the cities of the ancient world, Uh, An extraordinary proportion of of the big cities of Europe today, uh, obviously those in the area of the Roman Empire, so uh, not so much Germany, let alone Russia, but an extraordinary number have Roman roots. And people throughout time in the Middle Ages and in modern areas have always been conscious of those ancient roots of their cities. And they do much to revive them, to put them at the centre, to make them visible again. So that the way that Rome is visible as an ancient city today is a lot about how much Mussolini, for instance, or Napoleon before him, or popes before them, wanted to make the ancient city visible. How much did they influence each other? So I guess Athens came to prominence first, but were there connections between the two? By the time of the Roman Empire, Athens is a sort of tourist venue (laughs) and has remained such. Um, It was the great centre of the philosophical schools and and Romans would go to university in Athens. So they were highly conscious of Athens. And in general, the Romans grabbed any lesson that they could from the Greek world. But of course, it's not just Athens. Uh, Athens influences loads of other cities, which which are built. The, the Athenian model of having an agora, 
of having um, a council house, a theatre and so on, is a standard model in the Greek world. And the Romans take all sorts of lessons around. It's probably a city like Alexandria that has more influence on Rome than Athens. But whether it's immediate influence or via Alexandria, the influence is there. Having spent quite a lot of time in the two cities, again, filming this series, what what do you think that we could still learn today from Athens and Rome? I don't much believe in learning from the past. I, I, I hate the idea that the past is there to give us lessons. I think the importance of the past is to free us from the tyranny of the present. We think the world we live in is so important and it's the only possible way of doing things. And I think part of the fascination is to look back into the past 2,000 years ago and see people struggling with some really quite similar problems, but from a completely different perspective. Maybe there are lessons about immigration, for instance. Yet you can't just imitate the Athenian way? Should we introduce metics in Britain and and say that anyone can move into Britain who wants, but they'll have the status of metics? That's not quite a situation because our model of citizenship is different from theirs and our society is different. So I don't don't like the idea of, of imitation, but I think it's so important to look back into the past to see human beings struggling with similar problems and coming up with similar or different solutions. That was Andrew Wallace-Hadrill. The two-part series, Building the Ancient City, Athens and Rome, starts tonight, Thursday the 20th of August, on BBC Two at 8pm. And now we have a short advertisement break. Karina Erbach, author of Go-Betweens for Hitler describes how Germany's top aristocrats contributed to Hitler's secret diplomacy. So who are these go-betweens? Well, they were aristocrats in the first half of the 20th century because aristocrats had this enormous international network of friends and relatives in every country. So they could get access to top people very quickly. They had friends and relatives in Spain, in Sweden, in Norway, in Britain, in Italy. And their network had organically grown and it was used. And Hitler was one of the people who used it. Why did he use it? Well, because he didn't trust his own diplomats. At first he didn't. Later on, they did support him. But he wanted these personal go-betweens, these people who had helped him to come into power within Germany. Go-Betweens for Hitler is now available online and in all major bookshops, priced at £20. Now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma McFarnan. The Palace of Versailles has been forced to open a hotel to raise revenue in the face of slashed government funding. The palace, which was the principal residence of French kings from 1682 up until 1789, is inviting bids from private companies to create and run the hotel, the Telegraph reports. The Hotel L'Orangerie, as it has been tentatively named, will be set up across three mansions situated around 90 metres from the main building. Guests will be able to walk around the Royal Gardens for the first time in 300 years and some rooms will have a view of the Orangerie, 
the gallery that sheltered Louis XIV's 3,000 orange trees in winter. A percentage of the hotel profits will be payable to the palace. State funding for the Palace of Versailles has been cut from 47.4 million euros, the equivalent of 33.4 million pounds in 2013, to 40.5 million euros this year, the equivalent of 28.5 million pounds. In other news, the discovery of a mass grave in Germany has led researchers to believe they may have uncovered a prehistoric war crime. The remains of 26 people were found in a grave dating from the early Neolithic period, around 4000 BC, with evidence that the victims had been tortured, the Telegraph reports. Most of the victims had been hit over the head with a blunt instrument, but researchers were surprised to find evidence of deliberate smashing of the lower leg bones of a number of individuals. This, says the team from the University of Mainz, suggests the victims were either tortured before or mutilated after death. The grave was discovered in Darmstadt in 2006, and the findings have been published in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Meanwhile, bizarre ingredients such as plant gum and beeswax were used to embalm the bodies of an Egyptian noble and his wife three and a half thousand years ago, it has been discovered. The mummified bodies of royal architect Carr and his wife Merritt were found to have been placed into a natron salt solution, which was typical of mummification in the 18th century. But researchers found that their wrappings featured other, highly unusual ingredients, such as animal fat and fish and plant oils. The couple's internal organs, including their eyeballs and brains, were also left inside their bodies. The bejeweled mummies which were discovered inside gilded coffins in a tomb at the Theban necropolis near Luxor, are remarkably well-preserved. Researchers from the Centre for Evolutionary Medicine at the University of Zurich, Switzerland, said great care had been taken to preserve the bodies. The team says this contradicts claims that the bodies of lesser nobles were generally poorly mummified and suggests there is no such thing as a, quote, typical mummification. Thanks for that, Emma. Before our next interview, here's a reminder that tickets are currently on sale for our 2015 History Weekends that take place in York and Malmesbury from the 25th to 27th of September and the 15th to 18th of October, respectively. We have a great range of speakers that includes Michael Wood, Melvin Bragg, Lloyd Grossman, Susanna Lipscomb and Joanne Fletcher. Tickets are on sale now and you can get hold of them and find out more details at historyweekend.com. And a number of talks have already sold out, so do make sure to get your tickets soon to avoid disappointment. Each month in the magazine, we run a feature called History Explorer, where a historian travels to a site that offers an insight into a major event in British history. For our latest issue, Professor David Bates paid a visit to Norwich Castle in Norfolk, which has much to say about the Norman Conquest. He was accompanied by our production editor, Spencer Mizzen. If possible, can we go back just a um, a little bit, back from, uh, say, the Battle of Hastings to the months and years leading up to that? What kind of place 
uh, would Norwich have been then on the eve of the, the, the Norman Conquest? Uh, Norwich would have been a very prosperous town, one of, well, actually one of the most prosperous and important uh, cities of uh, of the English kingdom. Right. Um, uh, what needs to be emphasised, I think, in particular is its place in what we could call the North Sea world. Let's think back to the Vikings, to the Scandinavian invasions of earlier centuries, extensive settlement in this region, armies landed here, and indeed Knut's father, great Knut of the waves and all yeah. of that, uh, his, his father Sven Fortbeard sacked the town in 1014, so an important place, well, long before 1066. How would um, the Anglo-Saxon residents of um, East Anglia, most specifically Norwich, have reacted to the conquest? It depends, obviously it depends where you are. If I can go off in two directions. Sure. Norwich became the chosen centre uh, for the power of the conquerors, and we'll call them the Norman conquerors. But yeah. we, we need to remember that the building in which we're doing this interview uh, was actually built towards the end of the 11th century. Right. It's a second generation Norman conquest building, which reflects the plans of uh, not William the Conqueror, but of his sons. Now, in terms of what it did to Norwich, well, an earlier castle was built here. It was a huge earthwork castle here. By when exactly was that built? Certainly before 1075, when right. it was besieged. It involved huge earthworks. It involved moving well over 100 people out of houses. Doomsday Book says they were ruined. It becomes very eloquent at that point. Then the cathedral follows afterwards, so massive disruption. Yeah. I cannot have liked this. Yet, of course, eventually the town expands. But if we look elsewhere in East Anglia, Bury St Edmunds was a very important place. The Norman Conquest, or the period of the Conquest, made St Edmund into an international saint. And originally, the plan was to put the bishopric there, but the abbey refused. Yeah. So it eventually came via Thetford uh, from Elmham. Uh, to Norwich. So huge changes. In the long term, we might say the making a, a great assistance to Norwich's prosperity, but in the short term, a very wobbly process of change. Right. I mean, would there have been much um, resistance among the sort of native English population to the Normans in this area when they when they first when the Normans first arrived? Uh, there's no record of resistance here. You do see, of course, in the north of England, above all, at York, uh, you get resistance at Exeter, which, which in the Conqueror had to besiege in 1068. Here, I think we should need to think in terms of resentment, which sometimes became hostility, but never became organised into resistance. Although, of course, we're almost in East Anglia as well, just up the road is Ely and Heriwood, yeah. uh, the wake where there was organised, very effective yeah. resistance. Yeah. So it reflects Norwich's history, in other words, even if there isn't resistance, reflects the complications of what was in the end the imposition of a new political power. So what, why did the Normans feel the need to build a castle here then? If they weren't... Um, if they weren't facing significant resistance, what, why, why the castle? Back 
back, I think, to my original, to the, to the point already made about the North Sea world. Uh, Danish armies, uh, well, Harald Hardrada, king of Norway, had landed uh, further north, admittedly, but uh, in 1066, the king of Denmark, Sven Estridsson, his son Knut, either did invade or threaten invasions. This was, in terms of potential rivals to William the Conqueror and his sons, this was in many respects the front line. So the symbolism of power involved with not just Norwich, but also Colchester, another huge building of this kind, is very, very important. So it's a mix of symbolism, a prosperity which, now that we think of East Anglia as predominantly rural with largest towns, a prosperity and an urbanism, which is perhaps seems a long way away. So this, but the, the castle wasn't then just a, um, a symbol to the people living in East Anglia. It was also a, a way of projecting power to potential rivals from across the North Sea as well. Yes, exactly, and and it, and it fits what one. I think could almost call an imperial scheme of rule because it projects an image out towards France, Normandy and Europe as well. Because another very important aspect of this uh, is is that most of the building, the the keep at Norwich uh, and the cathedral is in stone which came from Caen in Normandy. Absolutely wonderful stone which would have been brought by sea and of course would have been the subject of huge, well a huge job creation scheme in Caen, making people in Normandy very prosperous. Is that typical of Norman castles across England? Would would, would a stone have been shipped in from the continent from in other castles? It's typical of uh, mostly of buildings along the southern and eastern littoral coastlines. Transport by sea uh, was crucial to this because, well, for obvious reasons, stone yeah. is heavy. Uh, so Canterbury, Winchester, then lots of small churches also uh, around Kent, Essex and East Anglia. You can find the use of car stone. So can you sort of describe the process of how the castle came into being. You say there was an original castle, then it was rebuilt or built upon in later decades. I mean, how long did this process take? Well, uh, since we know that that there was was a castle here by 1075, and we suspect since an earl was appointed by William very soon after 1066, it must go back almost to 1066. So the start of the process and we have to keep in mind all the time the huge scale of the earthworks which were here. The start of the process goes right back to 1066, almost to 1066, a process which involved huge changes to infrastructure, the creation of the French borough close to the castle, which certainly involved 500 or so people. Doomsday Book identifies just over 100 houses, but then there are families. It certainly involves bringing 500 people at least to, to settle here. Now, thinking in human terms, this has to be a complicated process of change, yeah. which culminates and then evolves further with the construction of this great building and also, of course, the, uh, the cathedral, very close by, uh, of which... You know, an, an enormous amount of the original late 11th, early 12th century building still survives. And you um, alluded to earlier a, a revolt which was um, perpetrated by one of the Norman settlers, is that right? And that 
yeah. that yeah. had played a part in the, the, the castle's early history. Yes. Well, technically, the man concerned, Ralph, Earl of the East Angles, wasn't Norman. Right. Uh, his father was half Breton and half English, uh, had come to uh, England in the reign of Edward the Confessor. But right. uh, his son, Ralph, combined with Roger, Earl of Hereford, who was the son of one of the greatest of all the Normans, William Fitzosburn, died in 1071, and the last English Earl, Waltheus. So it was a revolt of three very powerful people, very different ethnic backgrounds, all of whom resented William the Conqueror for one reason or another. It's all part of uh, needing to emphasise, you know, the mass of different forces, unsettling forces which are swirling around the imposition and, uh, of a new dominating rule. What makes this such a significant building in the story of the Norman Conquest for you? Well, it is one of the, the finest surviving examples of this type of, you know, the type of, well, state-sponsored castle building. What makes it so important is, first of all, the magnificence of the survival. Secondly, what I've already talked about, the how a building can be made to speak to us about the disruption and the process of change and the following prosperity, you know, the human life stories which are involved with this building. What also strikes home very much with me is the multiculturalism of this building. If you want to find architectural parallels, you look to the Loire Valley, some of the great square donjons built there by the Counts of Anjou and others. Within this building, that doorway draws its inspira- some of its inspiration from the palace of the German kings and emperors at Goslar. Am I right in saying you, you mentioned it, sir, um, when we were chatting earlier, that that's one of the finest examples of Norman secular architecture left to us in this country? Yes, 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 or at least an entrance doorway. Yeah. Yes, it is one of the finest examples. And, and you, you look up and spot and see well, identify not just magnificence, but I would say multiculturalism. And, of course, multiculturalism inserted into a city which is already yeah. multicultural. So what's Norman, Norman administration more multicultural than we, uh, we've tra- tra- traditionally thought? Or was this specific to Norwich? No, uh, it was much more multicultural. I mean, in the end... The formation of the Duchy of Normandy, of course. Normandy was created out of the Viking settlements and conquests of the 10th century. Normandy draws so many of its inspirations uh, from uh, the Latin, the military, the architectural culture Mm. of the medieval West. The great towns of Normandy, Rouen, which is twinned with Norwich, incidentally, it's not much survives there now, but uh, of, of the very early buildings. But again, it resembles a Carolingian palace, as does Facon. If you go to Bayeux, where the, tap- the tapestry and so on and so forth. But the archi- what we know about the architecture of the 11th century cathedral draws on all kinds of models from Western and Southern France. So there is no simple Norman package. Right. Uh, you are looking at, I would say, a European package mediated through the power of specific individuals, namely right. the Dukes of Normandy and the aristocracy, clerical and secular, around sure. them. 
And of course, Norman Power um, spread to quite large areas of Europe, hadn't it, yes. by that time? Yes, 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 it did. I mean, we, we, we are looking also at the migrations and conquests in southern Italy, which began in, in the early 11th century. You can actually see there, again, the synthesis of very, very different types of culture uh, with buildings and art history and so on, again, speaking volumes. And all of it leads me, actually, to reflect on this, you know, on the broad subject of the Normans in European history and the Norman impact. And it leads to me towards conclusions which might almost at first sight seem contradictory. Namely, it is also multicultural that we shouldn't reduce it to some simplified identity or uniform identity. But it is, of course, this one group around the Dukes of Normandy and around particular individuals, Robert Guiscard, Roger, Bohemian, the great names of the South. It, it, it is the individuals around this group who drive everything forward. So it is... In some respects, we underestimate the Norman dynamic. shouldn't make it into a simple Norman identity when we think of its impact. So how much um, would a, of a clash of cultures would the Norman conquest have been? I mean, how much did the Anglo-Saxons and Normans have in common? More than we usually um, assume or, or, or less? It depends where you look. I would think they had a great deal in common. They were, after all, maritime neighbours and uh, yeah. crossing the sea uh, was quite easy. If you make a division between clerical and secular society for a moment, the church in England ha had long-standing contacts with the continent. Edward the Confessor was recruiting bishops and clerics from Lotharingia uh, and so on. Uh, and in the end, they the responsibilities of churchmen were to the rule of St Benedict if they were monks. So in that respect, there is a, a leavening, uh, almost an evening out of cultural interchange right. uh, with organisation following 1066, but not necessarily, I would say, not necessarily any type of profound ideological change. When it comes to secular society, and again, thinking of this building at Norwich, you, are, you have to look at the impact of conquest. Uh, again, there's a sense in which I've said, well, the English might have well have started to build buildings like this, but would they have built on this scale? Question mark. Would they, as at, say, Colchester or Chepstow, have used Roman materials to emphasise a kind of imperial past revived through them? Would great buildings like Winchester, one of the largest, I think, the largest building in cathedral in Western Europe, except for St Peter's Rome at the time it was built, yeah, yeah. would they have been built on that scale? Probably not. So I think this is taking me back to the two emphases that I'm trying to, 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 to set before us here. One is the multiculturalism of it all. And thinking of Winchester, the great emphasis there on architectural design is the inspiration coming from the Cathedral of Speyer in the German Empire. So yes, the multiculturalism, but would it have happened in that way on that scale? No. no. And to add a little bit more to this observation, 
may actually be taking another question. We should never underestimate the importance of regional identities and human capacity to collaborate. Gatehouse, one of the great, another great surviving early building, the Gatehouse of Exeter Castle, the Rougemont Gatehouse, that mixes Anglo-Saxon and French, Norman, architectural symbols. They're in effect working together. They're working together. Yeah, sure. If you look at think of small changes in this part of the world around towers of Norfolk churches right yeah you don't find them anywhere else in the United Kingdom where do you find them around the Baltic right, we're back okay. in other yeah. words to yeah. the regional links sure. of the North Sea world as having a profound yeah. cultural influence yeah. so we're back yes to multiculturalism but we're also back to more dominant power yeah. and that is normal can I just move to maybe um, move the conversation on a bit now, just a bit of a wider scale to the conquest in its entirety. I mean, how much resistance would there have been across the country to Norman, Norman invaders in the years following the, the invasion of 1066? I think there would have been a huge amount of resentment, hostility and sometimes resistance. To me, the parallels which you have to make are with other conquests and, and let's say the sudden collapse of a state France in 1940 comes to mind where resistance de Gaulle is immediately on his way across the channel the government in exile others decide that collaboration is, is the route to follow the same psychological response must happen here but you get so many examples of local resistance where they feel that they're being put on where space is being invaded, that I would say there is long and extensive hostility, resentment. But in the end, it is power which crushes resistance, but it is also power which absorbs people into collaboration and the creation of new relationships and societies. Was there ever a point in the years following 1066 that the Normans were near to being ejected from England? No. So that once they'd won the Battle of Hastings or they'd suppressed the immediate resistance, they were always going to yes. conquer the rest yes. of the country? Yeah. What is, yes. What is striking, actually, is the, just the sheer scale of the takeover. Almost all the major landowners recorded in Doomsday Book come from Normandy or other parts of France. There's scarcely an English tenant-in-chief to be seen. I mean, one colleague, this is John Gillingham, has described this as a takeover on paralleled in European history. It, it is a quite astonishing takeover of what land. Is that? What was the reason well, that, you think? I think it has something to do with William the Conqueror's, partly William the Conqueror's way of ruling. Partly it has to do with the interactions created by the invasion of 1066. This was a very risky thing to do. It must have involved great trust in this man to pull it off, but it must have involved this man being thought capable of rewarding on an extensive scale, huge scale. And his reaction to resistance was actually to dispossess those who resisted and to install those in whom he had confidence yeah. and usually 
trust. And if we think of symbols, places to visit, here we are in Norwich, almost as far east as you can go in England. Think of Chepstow on the Seven Estuary, then border territory as now between England and Wales. Again, a huge building, symbolic of presence and power, is put up by, I'm certain, at least begun by William Fitzosborne, who was one of William's closest associates. I take it then that there was the, the Normans moving over to England either at the time of the, the, the original invasion or in its wake. There was a lot of wealth for them to make from this new nation they, they, just, they just conquered. It would, yes, it would appear so. And I'm aware, going back to your previous one, this is because I, I ought to say a little bit about the church in that respect. Mm, sure, yeah. Yeah, I'll come back to that though. But uh, yes, well, of course, there was wealth to be made uh, and there were careers to be made. In the end, the people who c- came from Brittany, Normandy, sometimes Flanders, parts of Picardy, would enjoy a wealth in their new territories, yeah. uh, which of course hugely exceeded what they would have been accustomed to at home, just, of course, as it made huge changes to the lives of the newcomers. I'm still fascinated by the fact that the English couldn't organise themselves more effectively to to throw off the Norman yoke, as it were. I mean, what, why is that? Well, partly because of the defeat of Hastings and the, and, and the death of Harold and of his brothers. The English earls left Edwin Morcar were pretty inexperienced. The other one, Waltheoth, he was still a boy at the time. Edgar the Atheling, you know, who was briefly elected king but not crowned in 1066, uh, he, he was, I think, nine years old. Again, yeah. he was a boy. There was no obvious person around who. Secondly, it is the Archbishop of York, Ealdred, who crowns William. There is a sense among churchmen that this is an act of God. Uh, it's also probably a simple pragmatism. You know, the, the victory had been so crushing that there was no other way. Right. So it is a mixture of positive responses to William, accepting responses to William, but the continuing hostility, resentment and turmoil which we must feel happened here, and of which we've got evidence at Exeter, York, uh, Shrewsbury, Chester, you know, around the borders, and of course in the interplay between William and the King of Scots as well, and Welsh princes. We're here in a place of great domination and power, but the atmosphere around must have been a very free brile and, uh, mm. you know, on, well, unsettled one. A lot is made of the, the brutality with which William put down resistance, especially in the north. Was it that brutal or was it um, quite typical of the time, the way he reacted to, to the uprisings? I, I'm going up to York to finally make my mind up about this next week. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'll report back. Yes. But to my mind, the harrying of the north was exceptional. Yeah. Right. I mean, it is. And again, it's something to pause and reflect on in the 21st century. There was a long tradition in the medieval West, Charlemagne and forward Frederick Barbarossa, many, many others, uh, of destroying peasant livelihoods as a way of inflicting political punishment on people beyond the bounds. On those standards, and of course we have Doomsday Book either to help us or 
because it's got useful information to hinder us because scholars disagree on how to interpret it. But what we seem to have, to my mind, is evidence of destruction which involved not simply driving people from their households but destroying the land in ways so that it could not be cultivated for a long time in the future. And I, I would like... Environmental historians, historians who study the effects of destruction of land, to turn their minds to the harrying of the North and help historians reach conclusions. I'm talking about buildings having voices here in Norwich, Mm. but also landscapes have voices and need to be interpreted. Uh, And the only way to build up the full picture around this conversation is to be very multidisciplinary. When do you see the Norman Conquest is coming to an end? I mean, when when do you think um, William is able to sit back and think, job done? In William's case, probably by 1070, by the mid 1070, he could think in terms of it as a military victory. Yeah. In terms of the Norman Conquest as a historical phenomenon, well, it, it's still with us. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, it's still with us. I mean, you know, people will, will rather hotly debate still whether it was a good thing or a bad thing, uh, to which I suppose my answer would ultimately this shows the importance of the study of history. Yeah. But it also sh- it illustrates the fact that the imposition of power by violence is ultimately so, so destructive and controversial that a final verdict is impossible. It was being debated, presumably, on the 15th of October 1066, (laughs) just as it should still be debated on the 15th of April. (laughs) (laughs) That was David Bates. You can read more from David and Spencer in the September issue of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale. Also in this month's magazine, we have articles on Anne of Cleves, The Blitz the French terror, and the secrets to being a successful monarch. You can get hold of our September issue now in all good news agents and digitally. And we're also continuing our trial whereby you can listen to the articles in the magazine. These audio versions can be found in our iPad and iPhone editions and on the website historyextra.com forward slash September audio. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash twizzlers. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, regular listeners or readers will know that we're running an ongoing series called Our First World War that charts the history of the conflict through the voices of those who were there. Well, we've now come to August 1915, and here, in an interview with the Imperial War Museum, is Lieutenant George Horridge, talking about a problem that afflicted a number of soldiers. Lice. Throughout this period, did you have any contacts with the United Kingdom, with the, uh, letters? Oh, yes. Us? Oh, yes. The communications between United Kingdom and ourselves were really good. We got letters regularly. Uh, in fact, um, so it may sound strange, but I used to get a parcel every week from home consisting of a shirt, uh, uh, a pair of drawers uh, and a vest, uh, clean, a piece of paper and some string, a uh, packet of tobacco, and I used to change my underclothes, send them back to be washed at home, and I avoided the vermin that everybody else was getting. Of course, everybody was getting body lice, but I never got body lice because of this method of transport with home. So basically you sent your laundrette home to be done by yes. your mother. <laughs> yeah, and it's amused a lot of people since I tell them I sent my washing home from Gallipoli. But that's what I did. Yeah, but no other officers did this. Never heard of anybody else, except my brother. He might have done it. No, you couldn't get the lice away. You could go and bathe in the sea, and you could take your clothes with you and your shirt and things, but you couldn't get rid of them. And, of course, it was a general, what called, sort of parade in the morning. Everybody had their shirts off and nipping the, these lice between their thumbnails and things like that. This was a regular occurrence. Couldn't get rid of them. Because, of course, the blankets got infested, and when you moved, the blankets weren't given to the same chap every time. They had to be collected and put in bundles. Then they were dished out again, and gradually these... Uh, these um, uh, uh, bankers got infested with them. Everybody did. But of course, I had my own sleeping bag. I didn't have to have a, a blanket. I had my own sleeping bag. That was George Horridge. You can continue to follow our First World War each month in BBC History magazine. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but do join us next time when we'll be broadcasting one of the lectures from last year's History Weekend Festival. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook? where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. 
Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. <laughs>